My name's Trey, I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to say thank you to the band for that powerful music at the beginning. Thank you, band, and I don't even know what that instrument is. Um, someone, what is it? Wash tub bass. There you go. Thank you, Zach, for playing it. Um, I also want to just say thank you to Jess and Adam uh, for your testimony, and to Jess for your offering yourself to, to God and to this community. Um, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And um, so thank you to you. And um, also, between services, we, we voted on and affirmed three folks who are in the process of moving uh, toward, perhaps toward uh, ordained ministry, Paul Ortiz, uh, Violet Ricker, and Jessica Lee. And so I just want to say, that's a big deal too. Thanks be to God. We're, we're proud of you guys. And, I mean, y'all know that this is a place where young leaders, um, both lay people and pastors and future pastors, are being raised up. I mean, you know Katie Dunn, you know Paul Hom, you know Rich Havard. You know, this is happening over and over again. And actually, it's happening at all of our sites. We have four sites. There are just, there are literally dozens of people. I mean, over 30, uh, more than 30 in the past five years who have been raised up. So you talk about what, what we invest in. That's one of the things we invest in is creating a place where people can receive and hear their call and go forward to do things in other places. So it's just amazing. So thanks be to God. I want to teach y'all a song. Um, I like to teach songs, and so you're going to learn one today, and I'm going to invite you to sing it, which I will freak people out, especially we're going to sing it without any accompaniment, even without the wash tub bass. Um, we're just going to sing it with our voices, which is a weird thing. When do we sing together as, as humans and just hear our weird voices? Uh, it turns out people used to do that a lot, um, especially back in the early part of this country. There was this. Um, there are many, so many musical traditions in our country, right? There are so many, and we don't want to say any one of them is the American tradition, right? There's no, there's no one Americana. Um, this is one part of American tradition, which is an early uh, hymn singing tradition called the Sacred Harp or Southern Harmony, and it came from uh, from England and Ireland, Scotland, and and into Appalachia, where it sort of uh, matured and some of these songs were written down. And these hymns were sung by people around campfires and on the front porch and, and sometimes in church and sometimes under the canopy of a tent meeting when they were having a revival service or sometimes under the canopy of stars and trees. And they would just sing these songs unaccompanied. And a lot of times we think about music being pretty or beautiful and there's nothing wrong with pretty or beautiful music. But this music was not really pretty or beautiful. It was and is a really haunting and holy and austere kind of sound. That is because when people sing in this tradition, they are taught to sing uh, at full bore, at full, like trying to push all of your air out of your chest and your diaphragm, with your diaphragm, just push it out in one, in one line, right? And so it's really loud and you're stretching yourself, all right? So instead of singing, da 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 you know, and, and, and you lose your self-consciousness, hopefully, because your people are screaming and yelling around you. It's very Pentecostal, actually. <laughs> Thanks be to God. I, I talk about it like a freight train of glory. So, um, I'm going to teach you a song. I'll sing it once, and then I'll invite you to sing it a couple times. You can listen the first time and join in. Friends, friends, only. There it is. Friends, all we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. 
Friends all pray and holy manna will be showered all around. That's your try. Friends all we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power that we try to Deep breath. All in vain unless the spirit of the Holy One come down. You add harmonies if you want. Why don't you stand up, all right? Take a deep breath. Here we go. Friends, all we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray and will your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the train of glory. People do that for hours, singing all these songs, different parts. It's beautiful. Go, on, go online and Google it, and you will hear what heaven sounds like. I prepare, I'm getting ready to move. Y'all know that. It's a sad thing. It's a heartbreaking thing. I'm, it's exciting. It's all those things. And this week, uh, I'm not moving until the end of the year, but this week the movers came and boxed up all our stuff and put it on a ship. It's somewhere right now. <laughs> in the Atlantic Ocean, on the way to England. Um, and I was going through all my stuff this week, sort of preparing for it to go, and uh, my mom had sent me some boxes a few years ago that she had been stored in her basement for 20 years, and she said, uh, I'm done storing your boxes in my basement, so I'm sending them to you, and so they came to me, and it's just three or four or five boxes, and I don't have a basement, so I put them under my bed for a few years. And this week I cracked them open to see what was in them, to see what I was going to move. And I found a lot of cool stuff, a lot of troubling things from high school. But one thing I did find that I was interested in was I found my entire report card collection from kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, it is. It's sort of weird. From 1980 through 1993, uh, nearly every report card I had. Uh, I kept them. I know some, some, sometimes mom and, mom and dad kept them, but I remember keeping them and sort of putting them together, which will give you a little insight into my head, right? I kept all my report cards. I know it's, um, speaking of report cards, I know it's mid-time, midterms time for many students. Any stu are there any students here today? Okay, so can, can you remember, those of you who aren't students, what it's like to be a student? And you remember midterm time? And you remember how, like, um, there's a little anxiety that happens about grades? People have different experiences of grades. I just want to do a quick sort of straw poll. How many of you are people, whether you're in school now or you can remember being in school, how many of y'all are people who felt like grades just got in the way of your educational experience? Raise your hand if you feel like grades just got in my way. Didn't really help me learn. All right. How many of you all are people that went through school pretending like grades just didn't matter at all? Raise your hand. Basic, any delusional people here? All right. Um, how many of you, if you're honest, anybody here who actually enjoyed obsessing about grades? Anybody here? Oh my God, what kind of congregation is this? 
Anybody who enjoyed being graded, all right? Anybody, oh my God, you are my people. <laughs> I see you, Rich Havard. <laughs> Anybody who has their entire uh, report card collection in a box under their bed somewhere, all right. Um, you know, one of the weirdest things about school is that we get graded that way. Another, another weird thing is that after school, we stop getting grades. And um, I don't think we realize how much our minds are shaped in our early formative years, our most formative years, how much our minds, our whole being is shaped by being graded for everything that we do. Um, for 10 years or 12 years or 13 or 15 or 20 or more, you get a grade for everything you do, which is sort of crazy. It's definitely formative, right? That constructs us. That makes us who we are. And then you graduate, and the grades, they stop coming, which for a while, right, feels like pure bliss. I don't know if you can remember the day that you realized, I will never get another grade in my life. And you, you remember what that feels like? You start to feel like, this is awesome. You begin to start being able to taste food again for the first time. It's like you've had a cold for 18 years, and finally you can taste food again. It's like you see a leaf, a colorful leaf falling, beautifully lilting, liltingly falling to the, to the ground in autumn. You think, I have time to contemplate that because I'm not being graded for any damn thing, right? And so everything is beautiful and everything is glorious because I'm not being graded. But then if you're like me, uh, you begin to realize a little bit later that without grades, you actually have no idea how you're doing. <laughs> you're my people. You begin to realize how much school provided you a standard by which to judge how you were progressing in life or not. You begin to realize how school provided you a standard to judge if you're doing a good job, to judge whether how to compare yourself with other people, how school provided you a standard by which to judge whether other people were doing a good job, which is extremely fun, right? <laughs> It is so fun, Aaron. I see you there. You're my people. <laughs> and after a while, um, you know, you realize that uh, you're not in school anymore. You get, you get cut off from that. You get cut off from the drug of that uh, being graded. No more report cards. No more class rankings. No more uh, red ink in your essays turned into your professors telling you how well you did or what you need to do to do better. After a while, it also begins to dawn on you, doesn't it, that um, school has also taught you that life is fair. It sort of sets you up a little bit. It's taught you that life is fair. That if you, this is what school teaches you, if you study hard, you'll get good grades. If you have your act together, you'll get, you'll get rewarded. If you work hard, you will get what you deserve. School teaches you that essentially life is fair. Uh, one of my friends used to be a campus minister, and he's actually written a lot about formation and grades and campus ministry and student life, and this has actually informed a lot of his sermons, lots of the content even. He tells this story of two freshman first-year students in his ministry, campus ministry, showing up to his office one day, and they were looking very serious, and they were wanting to talk about a problem that they had. The problem, he said, turned out to be that they were both, quote, good Christians, uh, that was their problem. He calls it a rare, being a good Christian is like, he calls it a rare and incurable disease. Um, 
And these good Christians, these two, these two people in his ministry, had discovered that some of the other students in the campus ministry were not behaving in accordance with good Christian standards. So they came to his office, not because they were worried about their fellow students, not because they were concerned about their peers' well-being. They came to his office because they just could not handle that these other students were able to act however they wanted seemingly without consequences. They said it was not fair, we do not approve of this, and they wanted to know what the campus minister was gonna do about these students' behaviors. My friend tried to explain them that ministry is not actually primarily about monitoring the behavior of people, um, but this is not the answer that they wanted. One of them said, well, can you at least let them know how disappointed God is do you laugh because you know people like that? Or do you laugh because you are that person? Uh, uh, you know, to other people or to yourself? Deep down, is that the voice you hear of God saying, you are disappointing? You know, I think, I think it all boils down to this desire. It boils down to a lot of things. One of the things it boils down to is this desire for life to be fair, for people to get what they deserve, like they do in class. I guess it actually boils down further to this frustration that life is not fair. It's just deeply, deeply frustrating. And even more, it boils down to the troubling truth that God does not seem to be fair, which is very troubling. I want to say a little bit more about that. Actually, I want to tell a story from the Old Testament. Remember the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament? Maybe you remember that story. Maybe you don't know that story. Let me just recap. Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt. Okay? Remember, just to recap, Moses was called by a, a burning bush on the side of the mountain, set my people free, and Moses goes and helps liberate his people, the Hebrews who were enslaved, have been enslaved in, in Egypt for generations. He goes there uh, in, in sort of part of this project. As the story goes, God brings down plagues upon the oppressive Egyptian administration, uh, and the Pharaoh uh, lets, lets them go, and they begin to go, and then Pharaoh has second thoughts and sends the armies after them, and as the story goes, God, this is a very troubling story, uh, drowns the oppressive armies uh, of the Egyptians who are pursuing these escaped slaves to recapture them. God drowns them in the Red Sea. God did all this, the story goes, because the Israelites had cried out to God for deliverance for generations, and God had heard the cries of the oppressed. Which is a, it's a, it's a troubling, beautiful, crazy story, and it's a story that's like one of the central stories of our whole salvation history. Okay, so it's a major story. You keep reading, you remember the story? Right after the Israelites are out of slavery, right after they're out on their own, um, the Israelites sort of miss slavery. Um, they sort of miss it. They miss slavery, they miss their bondage, they miss their addiction, they miss their compulsive behavior, they, they miss all the stuff that, sla you know, slavery, we're talking slavery, uh, it, it becomes a metaphor for all the things that hold us down. It's, you know, but so like, they miss, they miss being run by someone else's program. Which sounds stupid, right? It's like, dude, you're free. God has broken the bondage of oppression, and you're free, and now you are nostalgic, nostalgic about your victimization? It's just it's bizarre. But at least when you know 
when you're a slave to Egypt, a slave to your compulsion, a slave to your addiction, a slave to whatever it is that you're a slave to, at least, even though it's a hard life, at least you know how the world works, right? You know, if you're addicted to drugs, you know what the day is going to be like, you know? If you're used to uh, someone lording over you, even though it's hard, you know where your next meal's coming from or not coming from. You know they're not going to get a meal. You know what to do to get rewarded. You know we'll get you in trouble. You know, it's, it's a horrible life, but at least it's a straightforward and simple life. The Israelites said, we don't want that life. We want freedom. And God's like, here's freedom. And so they're wandering around in the desert. They are free for the first time. All right? They're wandering around the desert. So the next part of the story is they start to get upset about this freedom. They start to whine and moan and complain and bitch. All right. Some of the things in there. Why did you bring us out here, Moses? Egypt wasn't so bad. It wasn't that bad. Why didn't you just kill us there in Egypt? We were ha we were happy in Egypt. We lo actually we loved Egypt. <laughs> so the folks who cried out to God for God to save them are now whining because why? God saved them. God has broken them free from their bondage, and now they are whining. Right? If, if God were fair, God would look at that whining and be like, today you get a big F. <laughs> right? You fail the test today. F. But God responds to their whining, not like I would with big fat F. God responds to their whining and bitching and moaning. What does God do? God opens up the skies and rains down bread from heaven. Manna, it's called provides them food and nourishment and provision as they move deeper and deeper into freedom. You think, okay, they should learn their lesson now. No, they start to make a joke about this. The Israelites call this bread from heaven, they call it manna, which is a joke. It's a, it's a Hebrew joke. Hebrew, manna in Hebrew literally means, literally, it does. Ask your Old Testament professor. It means literally, what the F is this? It means, what the hell is this? Bread? We had meat in Egypt. Bread? You kidding me? So now we are like beyond whining. We are at full bore bitching. And what does God do now? You would think, F. No, God's like, oh, actually, I'm going to keep leading you guys. So here is a pillar of fire by day. Here's a big, uh, a, 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 by night, a pillar of big fire by night and a big cloud by day. And they're like, so here's this like huge, like, Storm system leading them in the daytime and towering inferno by night, better than any campfire. And they're like, we don't actually know if God's with us here in the wilderness. <laughs> Again, big fat F. What does God keep doing? God keeps, throughout the story, raining down bread from heaven. Which is why we sing this song. Friends, all we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Friends, gospel, someone asks Jesus, what is the kingdom of God like? What's the kingdom 
of heaven like? You will hear that question over and over again in the gospel, and that's a very important question. Perhaps it's the most important question, because when someone is asking what is the kingdom of God like, what she is asking, what he is asking in the gospel is essentially what is the difference between how the world works and how God works? So whenever you see Jesus answering that question with the kingdom of heaven is like, it is a response to uh, that question. What's the difference between the way the world works and the way that God works? How can we tell the difference? Some theologians in this contemporary age have put it even more pointedly. What's the difference between the economy of America and the economy of God? What's the differences between American or Western or worldly uh, hospitality domestic practices and the hospitality of God? What's the difference between the economy of scarcity, of there's not enough for everybody, and the economy of abundance, of there is plenty for everybody? And so Jesus hears that question just before the story that Laura read today, and he answers with the story that you heard read. You heard the story, uh, someone owns a vineyard, and it comes time for harvest time. And you know, have any of you worked on farms before? Any, any farm people here? All right. So you know that, like, it's hard work on a farm any time of the year, but particularly at harvest time. It's hard work. And so you need more hands to help, and you need extra hands because the work is not only more work, it's extra hard work. All right? It's also so extremely difficult harvest work that usually only the folks who cannot find any other work are the ones who are willing to do harvest work, right? So you know you go to Jewel Osco and you get those really affordable strawberries? You can get three punnets for a dollar, right? You know, nobody with a PhD or a JD or an MBA or an MDiv is lining up in the strawberry fields of California to pick strawberries. It's only those who can't find any other work. It's hard, difficult work. A friend of mine works in a homeless shelter and told me that a significant number of the people who live in that homeless shelter day to day and night to night work more hours than she does and she's employed full time at the homeless shelter. An example is the electrical worker who gets up at 4 a.m. to be the first one on the corner every morning to line up for temporary work. Maybe you've seen it around town. People lined up on the corner, sitting there with their stuff, waiting to be hired. Please, Lord, hire me today. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I don't know how I'm going to do this. They, they're lined up. And this electrical worker gets up at 4 a.m. He gets hired for 13 bucks an hour. And you think, hell, 13 bucks? That's more than I make an hour. Maybe, maybe not. 13 bucks, you can live on that. That's almost a living wage. Well, he explains, the contractor who so graciously hired him hires him, takes $2 an hour out of his pay to transport him to and from the job, another $5 an hour out of his pay to provide for insurance, which leaves him with how much? Six bucks an hour, most of which he sends to his son who's living with his ex-wife across state. The other money, lots of it he uses to actually purchase tools because guess what? The contractor makes all the workers provide their own stuff. That's why they're always hauling stuff. It's ridiculously low wages, it's no benefits, and there is always someone willing to work for less money than you are. So every, every day, can you imagine, maybe you've been on that corner, I don't know if you have, but I, I can only imagine. Can you imagine every day thinking, that alarm's gonna ring at four, I've gotta be out in that corner, because if I don't get out there, if I don't have my act together, I'm not ready to work hard today, I might not be able to live. Can you imagine? 
So one day, the, the guy who owns the vineyard heads out to that street corner and hires a group of workers. They agree on a fair wage, and they jump in the back of his pickup truck and head off to the vineyard for a long day of work. And as the day goes on, the, the overseer of the vineyard keeps coming in to the vineyard owner and saying, like, dude, this, is, we ha this harvest is much bigger than we thought it was going to be. We're going to need more help. We need more workers. And so the vineyard owner goes out uh, throughout the day. At 9 o'clock, you heard the story, at noon, at 3 p.m. Each of the time the guy goes back to the corner, there is still a long line of workers, hopeful day laborers, and he takes as many of them as he can fit in the back of his truck. All right? So fast forward, it's, it's almost closing time. It's 5 o'clock. They close the vineyard at 6. And the overseer comes into the vineyard owner's office and says, we still have so much work to do in this last hour. We've got to get it done. The sun's setting, but we still need more people. So the owner goes out to the corner again, and there are still people there on the corner this late in the day. Can you imagine getting up at 4 in the morning to get a job to pay for your baby's milk? To pay for whatever you need to pay for, and you're out there still 13 hours later, can you imagine the sense of despondency you might be feeling? So just imagine that. And then this truck pulls around the corner. You think, sweet God, we don't care what they're paying. I'm going to get in that truck and we're going to the vineyards. That's what happens. They do. And they start to work, and that last crop of workers hired barely has the time to get their hands dirty, picking the grapes or the strawberries or whatever it is, and it, the bell rings, and it's time to quit. And the owner unusually has the, the workers line up from the last hired, they stand at the front of the line, and um, the earliest hired at the back of the line. And unusually, he also begins to pay them, and when he hands these, these workers hired last, he hands them a full day's wage. Right? Did you hear that in the story? He hands them what would be work for a full day. I just want you to take a second and just imagine the journey from, if you were that last people hired, imagine the journey in your head and heart from 4.50 p.m. to 6.10 p.m. You're on that corner, you think, how in the world am I going to make it through? And then here comes the pickup truck, and 6.10, you're getting paid for a full day. Just imagine the movement from despondency and anxiety to sheer relief and joy. Have you ever had a moment where something happened that you did not expect to happen, and it brings you just such relief? You did not expect it. You open the email, and thank you, God, you, you got the call. I don't know what it is. I'm not saying that's always the gospel, but that sense of relief when you got, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to be okay today. That is, that's part of the gospel. That's what happened at 610, all right? And so the word starts to go down the line. This has happened, okay? And, and it goes down to the 3 o'clock workers. They hear what's happened. A full day's wage for the people hired at 5? Goes to the, 10, the 12 o'clock workers. Goes to the 9 o'clock workers. And it goes to the people who are hired the very first thing in the morning. And they think, if he paid them that, think what we're going to get. But you heard the story in the gospel, the story that Jesus told as that line moved down, that pay scale did not go up. And when it gets to that, they can pay the same thing to everybody. And when it got down to the early workers, they are, what are they? They are furious, they are pissed, they are insulted. They say, this is not fair. We deserve this. We worked hard for it. It is meaningfully ours. They demand an explanation. And this is what they get from the landowner. It is my money. It is my business. And I will do with it what I want. 
You're supposed to hear the voice of God there. This is how I run things. It's not how you run things. It's my business. It's my economy. I'll do with it what I want because I am God and you are not. Jesus finishes the story with that little line, that little, which is, so the last will be first and the first will be last, which everybody stitches on their pillows. <laughs> but no one actually accepts a sucker punch. That's what the kingdom of God is like, according to Jesus. That's the person that we follow. It's like, what is it like? It's like a group project at school. Oh, God. <laughs> Does anyone love a group project? You did? You are not my people. I was the leader. That's, that's what you have to do. You go in there, and you become the leader. And you're like, you do this part, you do this part. You write this essay. We're going to all, at the end of the, you know, it's horrible. But yet, it's a horrible pedagogy. But you have to do it, because that's how it goes. You're not in charge. And you do it. And you're working hard, and you're running the hell of that thing. You know, I'm getting an A. And then a, a few weeks before the end of the semester, some student transfers into your class. And you think, what a poor soul. You are never going to pass. You're not going to make it. You haven't been here for the lectures. You're not going to make it. And that person gets put, put in your group. And you all get an A because of your hard work. That's the kingdom of God. <laughs> Most of the time, our understanding of fairness only reaches as far as our own needs. Thank you for saving us. Shatter the glass. All right. Well, let's, uh, amen. God was saying amen. Well, should we just blow them out real quick? Just in case. All right. Um, most of the time, our understanding of fairness only reaches as far as our own needs. But that is not fairness. That is actually entitlement. And God's love is very different from our own sense of entitlement. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can lose. God does not seem to understand grades at all, which is very troubling for me. Um, it, it is. It drives me crazy. I feel like those two students in the campus minister's office saying, they don't deserve this. They didn't earn this. They didn't try that hard. It's not fair. Some days then, as I hear myself being that person, I will remember where I am. I will realize where I am, that I am standing there on that lonely street corner. I am desperate. I am hopeless. I have no place to go. And Jesus comes along, and he says he has a place, even for me. And I try and argue with them. I say, I don't deserve it. I did not earn this. I didn't try hard enough. It's too late for me. I messed it up. In fact, I continue. I messed it up today, and I will mess it up tomorrow. And Jesus says, I will hear none of it. And we head off to the vineyard. And as I lay there in the bed of the pickup truck, I look up into the sky, and there's bread raining down. Thanks be to God. Let us love our God supremely, let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till our God makes all things new. Then he'll call us home to heaven at her table.
beginning of a new sermon series, which we sort of softly launched into with that sermon. It's called, What is in Jesus' Wallet? What's in Jesus' Wallet? And so the next few weeks, we're going to be examining and exploring the difference between the economy of America, the economy of me, and God's economy. And we're going to be invited to think about that and what that means for us in practice.